1: This is the John Fuglesang Podcast.
2: I'm John Fuglesang. Welcome to Progress After Dark. William Shatner returns to the Love Fest this evening, and we are so excited about it. Uh, Bill loves our show. I can call him Bill once they hear here three times. We get to do that. And this week, for the first time, we sat down we're, uh, for a Zoom with Shatner. It's wonderful. He has a book out and you're thinking, Oh my God, Shatner book. No, no, it's delightful. It's called boldly go. And it's about saying yes to experience in life. And I expected to be cynical about it. And I just loved it. And you're going to love the interview. It's really, really fun. Also tonight we, uh, we packed in some good ones. You know, I keep thinking we're going to run out of things to say about FDR and world war II and fighting fascism, but no Peter Schinkel. Journalist joins us. His new book is called Uniting America, and it's all about how bipartisanship saved America because FDR wisely put a couple of Republicans into his cabinet. This was back in the day when doing that would help you forge alliances because people agreed working together helps save the world. That's not how it is anymore. Could it ever be that way again? It's a really, really uplifting book and really, really fascinating to learn about how these men, Democrat, Republican, progressive and conservative, who couldn't stand each other politically, and they had to work together to get all of the country on the same side to fight fascism. Also tonight, you can see me live in New Jersey with the gorgeous and funny and brilliant Leanne Lord at the Hopewell Theater. We are doing a political show. It's going to be a hoot. Uh, It's eight o'clock. Come on down. It's hopewelltheater.com right on the border of Jersey. Beautiful place. Also, Tuesday night, Laughing Liberally, Indictment, Incitement begins off Broadway. And then the big show, Stephanie Miller's sexy, liberal, save democracy comedy tour hits the Saban Theater in Beverly Hills. You know the one. You drive past it on Wilshire and La Cienega. Yeah, that one. It's a great place. Hal Sparks, Frangela, myself, our special guests include Glenn Kirchner and Rob Reiner. It's going to be the pre-election night party. And it's going to be so much fun. They decided we can't keep it to ourselves. It will be available as a pay-per-view at sexyliberal.com. It's like 20 bucks. You see the whole show. It's going to be a riot. Um, let me tell you, having done a few shows with these people uh hal and frangela's election material very sharp extremely funny uh they raise my game every time we go on the road together so yeah that's it i'm playing all over the place it's going to be a very busy time hope to see you guys out there now let's do a show (laughs) because it's 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 hard to say but i think the story of the week's got to be herschel walker his lies about having a cop didn't bother the republicans All those secret children he lied about to his staff, that didn't bother Republicans. The way he held a loaded gun to his wife's head. But this week, we found out that he terminated a pregnancy. And we found out that his family hates him and calls him a liar. And we found out that uh, the woman who terminated the pregnancy is a woman he's already had a baby with. And then we found out that he pressured her to have another abortion. And she didn't do it. And that child's now 10. And Herschel has seen that child three times in his life. Republicans didn't care because Republicans don't care. They care about winning. That's it. They care about power. They care about owning the libs. But things like ideology, that's just shit you say to get people to feel good when they vote for you. Only thing I can say for sure, I would bet cash money now that the Herschel Walker-Raphael Warnock debate is also about to be aborted. <laughs> that's th- that's what they revealed this week. <laughs> I oppose abortion in all cases, unless it's to save the political life of the father. If the Republicans cared about abortion, they'd fight for easier access to birth control. If they cared about abortion, they'd want to have sex ed in schools. They don't. They need abortion as a campaign issue. We talk about it all the time. Like they don't care about undocumented immigration. If they did, they'd lock up people like Donald Trump who hire all these folks. They don't care. They need to run on it. By the way, speaking of Herschel Walker, good to know at the Georgia State Fair, Ryan Kemp, governor running for re-election against Stacey Abrams, said, of course, he'll keep on supporting Herschel Walker, even though abortion is a murder. Every abortion is murder. And Herschel Walker paid for murder. But he feels really bad about it, even though he says he didn't do it. So he didn't do He lied, but he feels bad about it. And he said he's been forgiven and redeemed, but he didn't do it. Everyone in his family that says he's lying, is lying. So vote for the guy whose family warns you about him. You know, they fired their political director, Taylor Crow. Two people familiar with the matter said Crow was fired after a suspected leaking to members of the media. In other words, they're terrified and they want to make it look like they did something. But right after this news came by, the woman who said Herschel paid for her abortion in 2009 told the New York Times he urged her to terminate a second pregnancy two years later. So, Republicans, what are you going to do? Herschel committed murder one time, then he attempted murder a second time. This is Herschel, right? A week ago, Herschel was saying, I did not have sex with that woman who says I paid for her abortion in 2009. By today, uh, we did have a baby together two years later. We want to know how you're feeling and how you survived the week. We're at 866-997-4748. Let's go to the phones. Marie in Georgia. Have you got Herschel Walker fever yet?
3: Oh, my God. <laughs> Thanks for taking my call, John. Hey, you know, Marie. I'm so over this. I'm just so over this. Oh. Um,
2: I can't, yeah, I mean, so, I, I want to say I can't believe it, but I, I, I do. I believe all of it. Like, I I totally yes. get why the Republicans just don't care about any of
3: these revelations. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. the fact that they are running him as a candidate in general. Exactly. Means, because you can't, you know, that part of being Vetted for the, the party nominate, you know, for not only party nomination, but for the support of the party, is they've already dug into this. You'd best believe that they've known about this for yep. a good long time. This isn't really yeah. a surprise.
2: They um, knew he held a gun to his wife's head, and that was acceptable. Yeah. So, I mean, what are we shocked yeah. about, Libs?
3: Yeah, and and that's kind of my point. I mean, the hypocrisy... I don't think the hypocrisy of him having paid for or attempted to convince a woman to have an abortion, I don't, I, that, for me, that's that's not really much of a thing. It's not a, the, the disqualifier. It starts with the violence. The mm-hmm. fact that this guy has a violent past, you know, that that to me is nerve-wracking because who's going to show up at the Capitol? I know. If, <laughs> if when pressed, he doesn't have good responses to things. If that's his response, that's a problem. Yeah. But, you know. But but, but
2: will it be? I mean, they're going to manage him. If Herschel's in the Senate, you know what's going to happen. He will give his speeches. He's not going to ever. I mean, he'll never give speeches. He'll never be in front of a microphone. Strom Thurmond was a 100-year-old racist, and they just wheeled him around the Senate for years.
3: I I know. And that's kind of that gets to the point that I wanted to make tonight about him. I, I keep wondering for whom is Herschel Walker a proxy? Who's the person that couldn't run, that instead they decided to pick Herschel Walker to run? Donald
2: J. Trump. Because
3: either, well, Donald Trump. Either, hold on, he'd, he'd have to be a resident of the state of Georgia, and he's not.
2: That's right, but but he he's friends so, with Herschel Walker going back years. And again, Donald Trump endorsed him because Herschel was the most famous person running for the GOP nomination. And Donald Trump's ethnic group is celebrity.
3: This is true. But my my thought about it is, when I say for whom is he a proxy, who's going to be pulling his strings? It may or may not be Donald Trump. But worse yet, if he gets into office, God forbid... Then oh, he uh, resigns from office,
2: but he'll he'll be oh if he resign right uh, we've heard this theory hey, that Herschel gets into gets office appointed? and then immediately resigns and then they appoint a person who uh, can speak. I don't think they'd do that. I, I think he'd stay there um, until there unless there was a problem and he had to go. He'd have the job. Think about it. What what would be the problem? Once Herschel was in office, his donors would tell him how to vote. McConnell would tell him how to vote. And they'd wheel him around, and he'd be the what? Me racist Republican of the Year. Mm. And he'd go around, and you know what he'd do? He'd go around making speeches about black men who are absentee fathers, and black men who need to pull their <laughs> pants up, and black men who need to be in jail. Uh, you know, you know exactly what he'd do. He well, he'd would be, be the on every racist. What would be speaking about? Yes, every racist web show in the world will book Senator Herschel Walker oh. because they will love it. Yeah, I've done shows with these racist black men, and it's all for the comments section. They they love. Mm-hmm. I always say it. If you're a black man who will put down black men and black women, there's a white motherfucker put you in front of a crowd. Yep. Oh, yeah. Always. Oh, yeah.
3: So Mm. so I wanted to share that with you. But if I could, please, can I clarify something on Judge Luce Cannon? Please. The judge over the... (laughs) Please. (laughs) I've heard so much about this woman. Um, that, you know, the, the smackdown she got from the 11th Circuit the first time and the fact that the 11th Circuit kind of ignored what she did and decided they were going to allow DOJ's request for some fast-tracking.
2: Yeah. I'm,
3: I'm not sure that people understand how this works. Federal judges are lifetime appointments. They never have to run for office. They never have That's to right. raise money for yep. a, a campaign or any of that. Correct. If there's a lifetime appointment, there's no accountability. Correct. What comes with no accountability, no fear of having your decisions overturned.
2: And maybe, just judges, maybe, in, yeah, you do it You do it long enough for 10 years, and the Federalist Society puts your name on a list and hands it to a Republican White House someday.
3: Exactly. So there's no disincentive for making ridiculous rulings. Worse yet, if they're rulings that the Federalist Society likes, then that will impress them to put her up for... God only knows what, including Supreme Court of the United States.
2: You're so right, Marie. So,
3: there's well, no shame in her game. That's it's, right. It's meant, it's and, and
2: why would happened. there be? Why would there be any? How, how would she have ever gotten ahead in MAGA world if she yeah. did things like self-reflection and had grace? That's weakness for these mm-hmm. folks. Marie, I hope you have a wonderful yeah. weekend. Thank you so much. You too. Quick break. When we get back, more of your calls. This is progress. I'm John Fugel, saying this is SiriusXM Progress. Rich in Indiana, hello.
4: Hey, man. I wanted to uh, bring attention to the similarity between the uh, the atrocious behavior of men uh, as they were coaches in uh, the women's um, soccer league. Please. That's made the news this week, and what was here in Indiana the atrocious behavior of the coach for the USA Gymnastics and their sports doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Larry Nassar's the, the name that everybody is aware of because of like more than 500 people uh, showed up and you know you stand accused by 500 people. And the, the thing that this uh, needs to uh, have underlined here is that it's precisely the same weird model. You've got sports with women and men in charge of this organization, and you have men acting in this same atrocious way. It's a model, and the reason it's a model is because there's something else going on. It's more than just culture. This Mm -hmm. is something that exists from situation to situation. Go, actually, you can look at it from uh, the Sandusky uh, at uh, Penn State with uh, Joe Paterno uh, turning a blind eye, Mm -hmm. that that kind of authority over young people is one more way of looking at it. And what I'm trying to get at here is that this cult culture exists and it empowers misogyny. I agree. More than anything else, there is a, an externality that is accepted as acceptable losses. Yes. And it is misogyny. And yes. we've got to get at it. We've got to dig it out of its corner where it's hiding, shine the light on it, say exactly what it is. I haven't said it yet. Because I want to be able to call back. You can call. Go ahead and but say it, dude. We got to hit a break. Say it, dude. It'll undercut me. If you want to, if you want to know what this is, go to a little website. Less than a hundred pages. It's called fightgangstalking.com. dot com. Okay, and it's a history. And there's something that you can look up there called Zersetzung, which was the Stasi name of a civilian pacification program oh that my people against people okay yeah, i, I th- thought you th- were th- going to say
2: something about we got to get like a, a female gm or president in the league instead of these rat bastard men but before i let you go rich one little thing to keep in mind okay one little piece of information i want to add to what you're thinking about which is yes this has always happened men in positions of authority over women and girls they've always done this not all men and and most men who coach teams in the league haven't, right? So we give props to them. But men have always abused their authority. But keep one thing in mind. Things have changed. And it has never in the history of our species been harder for a man to get away with sexually exploiting a woman or a child than it is right now. Because of all the girls and all the boys, altar boys looking at you, all the girls and boys who have come forward and changed us from a culture of victims to a culture of survivors. If you want to prey on a woman or prey on a child and that's your way of being a man, you picked the wrong century to do it and we are all witness for the greatest change in power dynamics in the history of sexuality on this earth. Thank you for the call. We got to take a quick break. When we come back, Peter Schinkel journalist joins us. His new book is called Uniting America, and it's all about how bipartisanship saved America because FDR wisely put a couple of Republicans into his cabinet. This was back in the day when doing that would help you forge alliances because people agreed working together helps save the world. We'll be right back after this quick break. This is Progress. (laughs) Welcome back to Sirius XM. Um, right now, let's go back, back in the midst of time to a time when Americans were embracing isolationism. 1940, the losses of World War I were horrible. They were still fresh. And a lot of folks on both sides of the political aisle were saying, hey, seriously, what business does America have saving Europe anyway? Now, um... As we discussed in length with Ken Burns recently, the America First advocates included people like Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh. Fascism was spreading all over Europe between Mussolini and Hitler. A lot of people thought it was inevitable. Uh, Joe Kennedy said it was inevitable and there was no stopping Hitler no matter what. And by the way, Hitler's better than communists. And as the Nazi armies became more menacing, Franklin Roosevelt, our president, urged a deeply divided America to come together to defend democracy and freedom. This is the untold story of the most crucial bipartisan alliance between Democrats and Republicans in American history. Peter Schinkel worked for 19 years as a reporter at various news organizations, including the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. He's previously the author of Ike's Mystery Man, but his new book, Uniting America, reveals the true story of bipartisanship during World War II, when FDR announced in 1940 that two prominent Republicans would take posts in his cabinet. Those men were, of course, Henry Stimson, Hoover, Secretary of State, who became Secretary of War, and Frank Knox, the Republican VP candidate in 1936, who became Secretary of Navy. It's not just a gripping history. It's also a deeply inspiring one. Uh, Peter Schinkel, what a pleasure to welcome you to the show. Hello.
0: Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Oh, no, thank you so much. Um, th- this book is great. And it's like, no matter how much you learn about FDR or World War II, it it just goes to show there's so much we still don't know. And it is amazing how contemporary and urgent the need for bipartisanship feels before I even get into it. Can you set the stage for our listeners? How severe were the political divides in the US leading up to World War II?
0: You know, it's funny, we live in this time today, when we think of today's political climate as hyper-partisanship and terrible and extreme and um, demeaning. And it is all of those things. And, and violence is now cropping up in our political life uh, so regularly that it's very alarming. I will say that is perhaps a distinction between what was what the, a difference from what we had in the 1930s. But it's important to remember that the political divisions back then were enormous too. And we sort of forget them the farther we get in time away from them. But you have to remember that um, FDR um, uh, was reviled by the Republicans of his day. Um, uh, during the Great Depression, to help the nation recover, he supported and created... Great government programs, large government programs, I mean to say, um, to build public works and infrastructure projects, to create jobs and help the country recover from the Depression. Um, He also created a huge governmental program to provide uh, retirement funds uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, funds for people who are disabled. That's social security. Um, And he signed a law giving employees greater rights to. Um, Form unions in their workplaces, if they wish. And for all these things, he was denounced by Republicans as a socialist, as a communist. It was a very harsh time. And then on top of that, you get the things that you spoke of in your introduction about isolationism and um there had been huge ferment in america jp morgan was hauled before congress to testify about the millions and millions and millions of dollars he made financing arms deals uh to Mm -hmm, for for mm -hmm. the first world war um there was a legitimate uh reaction to that war in which one hundred and fifteen thousand americans perished um so when the second world war hitler arose again um Uh, There was tremendous, a tremendously fierce opposition to the things that FDR was hoping to do. Um, The one caveat that I would offer is that Henry Stimson, who had been a lifelong Republican um, and um, close ally of Teddy Roosevelt. That's right. um, And served as secretary of war once before under President Taft. um, uh, He believed uh, in. He he believed that internationalism was the right stance, that the United States should reach out to defend democracy, should build alliances. And um, uh, he disagreed with FDR on that. FDR actually signed the Neutrality Act in 1936, which was the Mm -hmm. embodiment of isolationism in a legal framework. said that if there's another war, uh, the United States cannot lend aid to either side that's right must remain strictly neutral and uh fdr signed two extensions of that law stimson opposed it um but when nazi germany attacked poland in september 1939 uh, fdr came out and said i regret that congress passed that act and i regret that i signed that act and he flipped he realized um that stimson and other internationalists had the votes in Congress. And in fact, the act was reversed. And that opened the floodgates for aid to Great Britain um, to begin our aid and our entry into the war.
2: It's fascinating to think about this, this bipartisan relationship between a a Democrat and a couple of Republicans is at the center of the entire country's confrontation with global fascism. couldn't be more different than what we face now. But I, I get that FDR intended these appointments to, to try to build national unity, right? The depression's happening. We're, what, we're witnessing a possible war overseas. We've got to try to bring Americans together. It's good politics. It could be good policy. But I would imagine building a coalition like that across party lines when you're still getting out of the depression and when there was still so much finger pointing happening over the depression that could have really backfired politically for him in a very harsh way, couldn't it?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, Stimson was uh, very concerned that members of his party um, would um, uh, begin pushing for a negotiated settlement with Hitler. Um, and uh, it's, it's very possible that um, the party would have gone with an isolationist candidate who might've won the election. And you can imagine, now we're getting into the area of counterfactual history, but sure. still you could imagine that if an isolationist candidate won in November of 1940, uh, things would have ended up very, very differently.
2: Well, I mean, but Stimson himself, you know, I mean, he had been very against the New Deal. Uh, He would challenge FDR all the time, even in cabinet meetings. I know that he had supported World War One and supported Wilson's declaration and, and supported ending the Neutrality Act. But as you point out, these two guys, FDR and Henry Stimson, for all their political differences, had a lot of commonalities. And it seems like this is one of those great examples of how if you can find a commonality with your opponent, you can make them your ally while they're still your opponent. What was it that they found in common that helped lead to their their friendship and their mutual respect?
0: Well, to begin with, um, uh, I mean, they had certain educational um, and and class backgrounds. Um, if FDR was far more wealthy and came from uh, multi generational wealth, of course. Sure. Um, Stimson um, Did not come from such wealth um, But he had gone To Yale and to Harvard FDR had gone to Harvard Stimson had a career in the law A very successful practice of law Of his own on Wall Street um, So uh, They they had a lot of Understandings about um, Shared um, uh, Shall we say Shared perceptions of the world mm-hmm. um, But in my research, I found that's really not enough to get you there, right? And, and so um, in my research, I found that um, after FDR's election in 1932, they began a series of meetings and um, had a very close dialogue um, in which uh, they talked about the state of the world. And Hitler had risen to power. Um, and um, there was a lot of concern about the future of uh democracy and um they they built a shared understanding that they were going to have the country was going to have to fight to save democracy and um i found one instance for example simpson sent fdr an article um, by a british liberal historian named ramsey muir and um uh, fdr wrote him back um in uh, December of 1934, and said, thank you so much. I read that article twice while I was in Warm Springs. Of course, he was taking the cure in Warm Springs, Georgia. And he said, I read it twice there, um, and it's a splendid expression of faith. And so they had a real shared value, um, which was preservation of democracy. And they had a vision for that. Uh, for the entire world, not just for themselves, not just for the United States. Um, They believe that in in a, and yes, it was Christian based. It was um, because Ramsey Muir's article is, has a certain uh, role in it for Christianity. Um, But um, they found that was their shared goal and that could get them over the hump of, we've got to do this together Yeah, and we've got to find common ground.
2: I think we also have to remember, this was a time, and and listeners may find this hard to believe, but when you had plenty of liberal Republicans and lots of conservative Democrats, the parties weren't as ideologically rigid and separate as as they are now. And I found it fascinating to learn about how in 1940, when FDR was up for re-election again, and he was terrified the GOP would choose an isolationist nominee, because he felt if America didn't get in this fight, the Nazis would take over all of Europe, and the GOP suddenly nominates... Wendell Wilkie. Um, I didn't know that Republicans in FDR's government were reaching out to the liberals of their own party to try to make Wilkie, I guess, as much of an ally as they could, even though they were running against each other for president.
0: Yes. Well, this is um a part of the story that um I don't think has ever really seen the light of day and no. I, I spelled this out the relationship between Stimson and Wilkie. Stimson had joined the Roosevelt administration in June of 1940, but he had actually known Wilkie for years. Um, they had both uh, worked for a, a large electric holding company, uh, electric, a very prominent and powerful electric holding company. Um, and uh, so even as Wilkie was running for president, Stimson was approached by one of his supporters to try to get him to help Wilkie. Mm -hmm. But after Wilkie became the nominee and by then Stimson was in FDR's cabinet, um, Stimson began reaching out to Wilkie, um, as did FDR, mind you, uh, Mm -hmm. to try to convince his fellow Republican to try to uh, go easy on FDR on two very important issues Um, That They felt were issues of national concern, of such great national defense importance, that they should not become political footballs. They should not get they should not be used against FDR. And that was um, the conscription of soldiers, Mm -hmm. um, which FDR was supporting, um, and also the donation of 50 Navy destroyers to Great Britain. And Wilkie complied with those requests uh, amazingly. Um, And later, um, Stimson would play a key role in helping Wilkie uh, meet with FDR and arranging for him to to have that meeting and then to come on board, bring him on board in support of Lend-Lease, the um, all-important arms funding program that FDR convinced with the help of the three Republicans, mind you, Stimson, Wilkie and Frank Knox. Um, convinced Congress to pass it in um, early 1941. So the, the bonds between uh, the Republicans across the lines are, are really amazingly strong.
2: It's it's almost impossible to imagine alliances like this working in this way time in the last 30, 40 years in our government. It's just amazing.
0: It is, I agree. And what's really interesting, though, I should say, that is that this is an alliance within the executive branch and that is a real rarity we do often have bills passed in congress that are bipartisan bills alliances come together very briefly and then they fragment as one as you would naturally expect it to be when people are just voting on things but the infrastructure bill the gun safety improvements bill that passed, right. those are examples those are alliances that are, you know, gone into the ether again. Now, yeah. this alliance that I talk about in Uniting America is something that endured for five years through immense struggle, through the World War, um, so many, facing so many difficult decisions. So it's a very different animal. Um, uh, but we do have uh, bipartisan alliances possible today. I, I don't want to say that it's. Um, Impossible, of course. Um, but you have to remember that there there have been bipartisan appointments to the executive branch um, up into contemporary sure. times. Um, President Obama, for example, pointed to Republican secretaries of defense,
2: usually secretary um, of treasury or rather usually secretary of transportation goes to the other party. Something like that.
0: Exactly. George uh, George Bush um, published uh, appointed a Republican Uh, excuse me, a Democratic um, secretary of transportation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I want to ask you about another dynamic, because while these political opponents were having to work together to deal with conflict overseas, they were also having to deal with the conflicts at home. And FDR was under a lot of pressure to integrate the army. There was going to be a march on Washington on this. And there was all manner of white violence against black Americans because of uh, the integration of war industries. What was going on and what were the conflicts like for FDR and Stimson during this period of our history, which is really not discussed that much? We all learned about, uh, oh, Truman desegregated the military, but we're not taught a lot about the battles that went down over that topic
0: for his predecessor. Right. FDR and Stimson both did not endorse desegregating the army. But um, at, when the conscription bill came up in, uh, the summer of 1940. Um, and Stimson immediately became one of the leading figures in pushing for its passage. Um, uh, the issue of integration was advanced, including by, uh, Thurgood Marshall, who mm-hmm. was then an attorney for the NAACP. Um, and, uh, Stimson refused to do it. He didn't, he, he, he wanted, african-americans to be brought into the army at the percentage in which they were in the population so nine percent of the inductees would be uh black americans but they didn't he didn't want them in the same units and neither neither yeah. did the uh, armed services chiefs <sighs> That's um, true. and he kept that resistance up and what i report in, in the di- is from his diaries there's some remarks that are plainly racist um, mm-hmm. about uh, black people not having leadership in them. So Stimson doesn't come out well. And this is not a hagiography of Stimson. Yeah. I think we need to look at the good, the bad and the ugly. And Absolutely. This is the ugly. Yeah. Um, but what's as fascinating. Is, as is, is
2: so often the case with men of both parties during this time when it comes to racism. But yes, please go on.
0: Exactly. Well, and what's fascinating here is that, and, and he also um, and, and I don't know if this is any excuse, but he would certainly say it's a reason. He feared conflict between the races because, yes, the racial climate in America was hideous at this time. I don't know, you know whether it's better today. I don't. I leave that to someone else to judge. But it was hideous. And um, he feared that there would be conflict in the army if he tried to desegregate the army at that time. But fast, fast forward a year later in, in uh, June in 1941. um a. Philip Randolph, who mm-hmm. was also a prominent uh, uh, civil rights activist, um, but known chiefly as the uh, founder of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the famous black union um, headquartered in Harlem, um, began calling for a march on Washington to uh, desegregate the armed forces and the war industries, in other words, with billions of dollars flowing into making tanks, making planes, making vehicles, <laughs> making weapons, all the material that the war needed. He wanted those industries to be desegregated. That's right. Um, and this came before um, FDR and um, Eleanor Roosevelt got involved and she advocated for the president to meet with Randolph. Um, and there was a meeting held with, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, another Mm -hmm. fine progressive Republican from uh, New York City. Uh, the meeting was held in New York City Hall. And then a week later, they met in the White House and there um, Stimson, who was an old ally of LaGuardia's, um, met with them. And um, Stimson at that time agreed that the war industry should be desegregated. And LaGuardia drafted an executive order. And a week later, executive order um 80 82 was signed and it by by the president um and the president endorsed this obviously he wouldn't have signed it had he not um but it's fascinating how the two republicans kind of came in and supported if stimpson had put his foot down and said no you can't desegregate the war industries i don't think this would have happened wow so um What's fascinating here? Fascinating here is you see these Republicans playing a key role. The, uh, the this executive order created the Fair Employment Practices Committee, um, which um, played a huge role in desegregating uh, the war industries during the war, and, and created a split with Southern Democrats who hated the idea that the federal government should be involved in That's desegregating right. That's industries. Right.
2: And we know what happened to those Southern Democrats. Uh, you, you know, what's fascinating as well is I know that FDR worked with with Stimson and these other Republicans, obviously, to to win the war and to create the United Nations. But what were some of the long term political benefits of this alliance? You know, we can say all day long how, oh, wouldn't it be great if we got along like this, if we could w- reach across the aisles and work together to t- defeat fascism here uh, or at least existential threats together here? Um But, you know, it's also good business and it's good for the long term survival of a country. And I know that obviously this helped to set up the internationalist foreign policy of the U.S. after the war. But what were some of the other long term effects of FDR trusting these Republicans to help him manage these conflicts?
0: Well, I think the first um, benefit that I what comes to mind here is um, victory over Germany and Japan. Um, which paved the way for democracy to um, prevail in the United States um, and in many other countries in the world. Um, And that is a a blessing of uh, enormous dimension. Um, it's, It's a battle we're still fighting today, of course, but mm-hmm. that is an extraordinary benefit. You, you did mention the United Nations, and that was yes. a, a remarkable bipartisan story um, in its own right. Um, uh, there, um, uh, that was carried forward after FDR's death in April of 1945 um, by President Truman. Um, mm-hmm. um, and I think that the, the success of the U- United Nations has also been an extraordinary contribution um, I, you know, I think we all wish it was a little more active yes. and, um, <laughs> I don't think it really helped us much with Ukraine, for example. Um, but, um, um, those are the, the chief examples of, of, the long-term benefits that, that I think of. And we, and would you say that
2: this affected sort of how the American political parties eventually became realigned?
0: Oh, absolutely. In fact, that was one of the most um, interesting things that that I found in the book uh, in my research was um, that FDR um, uh, actually concluded that the parties needed to be realigned. And this resulted chiefly from his tremendous dispute um, with the Southern Democrats in uh, 1943 and 1944 over the soldier vote. And um, FDR was facing re-election in 1944. And he wanted, he believed that, hey, we've got 10 million soldiers drafted. Um, wherever they are in the world, they should be able to vote. They're fighting mm-hmm. for democracy. They should be able to vote. So two parties immediately cried foul. foul. Um, the Southern Democrats felt that to do that. And when, sorry, and what FDR proposed to do was that they should all get a single vote because having them all comply with state voting rules would be impossible. Okay. And, um, so, uh, the Southern Democrats objected that they wanted their rules to apply. They sounded the state's rights. Of course claim, they did. And of course they were concerned that, uh, black voters in their states were going to be casting ballots that they didn't want them to. They had succeeded tremendously through Jim Crow in suppressing um, uh, the black voters. And northern uh, Republicans um, were concerned that the president was lining up votes for himself, that all soldiers would vote for himself. So this led to a huge dispute. And um, ultimately, the legislation that was passed was compromised. And it didn't have that much of an effect on the vote outcome, which, of course, uh, FDR won reelection. But it became such a huge, huge dispute in um, early 1944 um, with Southern Democrats rising to the floor in Congress and calling for white supremacy, overtly saying we want to defend white supremacy. We'll defend it to the death. And, you know, making all sorts of allusions to the oppression of the Southern states in the Reconstruction era. Um, it, It got very ugly and very heated. And this pushed fdr to to the edge and he said look i can't go on like this um trying to cobble together um a coalition between the liberal democrats in the north and the liberal republicans why don't we take the liberal republicans in our party the democratic party and send the conservatives the white supremacists and so forth boom over to the republican party And he became so convinced that this kind of transition should happen, um, that he conveyed it to his longtime trusted aide, Samuel Rosenman, and had Rosenman approach Wilkie, which he did in a secret meeting in a hotel in New York in early 1944. And um, Wilkie, according to Rosenman's account, which he later published, said that this is a great idea. I'm in. I can't talk to you about it now. We got the election coming up, but somewhere down the road, this makes complete sense. Let's uh, let's have one completely liberal party and one completely conservative party. What do you think we have today?
2: And let's see how <laughs> well, well that worked to- out. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's well, <laughs> there's the well, irony, right? <laughs> Democrats and Republicans work together, and it led to this.
0: Well, you know, <laughs> but it's interesting. I don't, I don't think if the two parties are. Um, not hybridized anymore is mm-hmm. necessarily a bad thing. I think if one party and I'm not naming names, if one party refuses to budge from anything and believes in conspiracy theories and foments uh, violence, that's a problem whether that party's on the right or the left. Yeah. I don't I'm not sure that that having two parties that are more homogenous within their own structure is a bad thing.
2: but that's a whole other conversation but i love where you go with it and obviously it's the kind of book that asks those questions and it's a book worth reading because these kind of dynamics seem almost incomprehensible in our current system of the divided tribes of america peter Schinkel, it's a pleasure to have you here the book is uniting america how fdr and henry stimson brought democrats and republicans together to win world war ii Thank you so much for joining us. Amazing. You found a whole book about FDR and World War II that was just completely new. And I thank you very, very much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much. It's been great to be here.
2: Thank you. We're going to take a really quick break. Don't go away, because when we come back, it's a very special conversation with a very special man. William Shatner just became the oldest human to ever go into space. And that paled in significance next to his appearance on our show. This is progress. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Mr. Shatner, you've done our show a couple times in the past. Um, I know. I was
1: looking forward to being with you.
2: I'm really delighted. I I, I once had a great conversation with you about how I felt Star Trek V is the film that most deserves uh, a CGI director's cut budget, and um, I got to tell you, I love this book. I I have a lot of questions. I hope you haven't been asked thousands of times.
1: No, I'm. I you're the first one I've ever talked to about it. <laughs> All
2: right. I I have a flowery, obsequious introduction, uh, which I I will go through as quickly as I can. Obsequious
1: introductions. That's great. And here for obsequious introductions. (laughs) Well, it's kind
2: of hard. You know, you you command command a few superlatives uh, when talking about you. So Chris, Thea, are you ready? Shall I begin? We can even include this in the show. All right. My next guest, is the grandson of four jewish immigrants from ukraine and lithuania he commanded the starship enterprise in tv and seven films he played a veteran police sergeant he played a crude boston lawyer he's a recording artist he's a horse breeder he even sold a kidney once for Habitat for Humanity. Last year, he went to the depths of the ocean to swim with tiger sharks for a documentary at age 90. His 11th album is called Bill, featuring our friend Joe Walsh, and it proves his style of song performance has now become its own rich genre. He recently became the oldest human to ever travel to space. But in Mr. William Shatner's newest book, boldly go reflections on a life of awe and wonder he's tapped into his nine decades of life and experience for a collection of essays that prove maybe he's only had one core direction that of being a seeker nine decades of saying yes to experience be it joyful exultant or tragic this gentleman is one of our most famous atheists and yet i think this book is the most spiritual thing he's ever done and it proves that when it comes to the miracle of human existence there is no final frontier
1: mr william shatner welcome back thank you i've never heard myself described as an atheist i just don't know so what yes. is that an agnostic agnostic but nobody knows you know some people accept faith as fact and that uh, you know the word faith does not mean fact uh, right. so you can accept something on faith and and uh, you know they are going to pay the bill i'm doing this work for you i'm my faith is you'll pay the bill and generally they will but what if they don't you've laid you misplaced your faith so i'm a little bit skeptical because will my dogs come with me to heaven
2: yeah exactly i well, i think the pets are guaranteed of going i don't know about the rest of us
1: right so that that's the mystery but what is not mysterious and what i i i seek what i seek is the And it's not mystical connection with nature. It is absolute science involved as to how connected we are, how we emerged from the seas of Earth. And it took 5 billion years for this beautiful thing to evolve, where things we don't know are going extinct to things we do know. The tragedy of it all that we're doing to ourselves And even now, when you think of what in heaven's name is methane doing coming out of the ocean to poison us? You know, what? why are we using all the material of earth to have a war when it only shortens the length of time that we can live on this earth? It's absolute madness, and we've got to call it as such. And that's part of what I hope the book is about our connection with nature and the universe.
2: Well, I think you nail it. And the atheists have claimed you as their own for quite some time. But I've never wanted to put you solidly in any one camp because, you know, I always thought Star Trek V kind of nailed it. I mean, I think that film is about the search for something that's real spiritually. But the danger is all the religious charismatics. Who show up and claim they found it and only I can take you there. I mean, Lawrence Luckenbill's character in that film really is a stand in for, in many ways, the most seductive and dangerous elements of organized religion, which is very different from spirituality and the kind of, I guess, sacred
1: moments of existence. Well, you see, that's, you know, I, I feel great gratitude for you for perceiving what was in my mind to begin with. When oh, yeah. I broach the idea because we were allowed, you know, it's okay, it's your turn to direct us to Star Trek. What do you want to do? Well, you know, what about if Star Trek goes in search of God? Oh, what a good idea. So I go to New York, a famous novelist, and, uh, and walk the streets of New York talking about it. And he says, that's a great idea. I'll write that. And I come back to Paramount, in Los Angeles, and say... Uh, well, I've got this great novelist. So they said, well, I will do a talk to him. So they talk and they can't meet, have a meeting of minds. The author wants to keep the novel rights. He's a novelist. Mm-hmm. And the studio wants to keep the novel rights. It's their property. They never could come to an agreement. Then somebody uh, said, well, but who's God? Who who Who's our God? And I said, well, I mean, it's a... Uh, general god i mean the god of all these religions is presumably the inventor of, <laughs> of this universe the commander so you call in him chief. a different name or you come to his awareness uh the uh, latter day literally and figuratively or you are some ancient religion who worshiped uh, what they thought were spirits in the in the rocks and the trees and might very well be uh, but, but what's the difference? Well, no, you got to, let's make it an alien. And that robbed right. me, and I didn't realize it at the time, of the vitality of that idea.
2: Well, I mean, it's a great idea, but it's also what I love about this book. And I, I really didn't know what to expect in the book. It It is a memoir, but it's not. And you aren't claiming here to be a, a guru of any kind tight, but you are sharing your truths and insights in a way that I think is very spiritual. Because, like science, true spirituality tries to understand the nature of this existence. That's and very the profound. That we all share.
1: You know, when I read a book about the book, actually, because uh, I recall it, is called the the Mother Tree. So I read yes. that book, and I and I, and I've always known that trees communicated downwind by releasing pheromones saying there's a Mm -hmm. uh, there's a beetle attacking me you know make your sap more toxic and the trees would do that so they trees understood in some way to make their sap more toxic to the beetle what we didn't know until recently was that trees are sending electrochemical signals along the mycelium of fungi exactly to Mm -hmm. other trees they're communicating well how do we communicate in our brain electrochemical signals and our dendrites which are just so look at how profound that connection is and that's just one simple connection with the whole universe it's it's a wow to know that to know how connected we are with the universe
2: I mean, that's what turns me on about the book. You you lay out these, what I would call a holy moment, you know, something that's not necessarily belonging to any religion or theism, but whether it's you seeing the shape of the earth in your 11 minute flight to space, or whether it's you petting the stomachs of sharks at age 90 in the water, it's that sense of wonder, I think, that encompasses
1: the best well, of what science try, and I faith are they all about. Just- that's beautiful man the you know so i don't know who discovered it that'd be interesting to find out that if you take a shark turn a shark upside down if you can turn a shark upside down and pet its belly it goes into um, a toxic shock yeah i think it goes into a (laughs) coma of some kind goes to sleep yeah If you can pet the belly of a shark it'll go to sleep so if you get a little shark three foot four foot shark and it's not one of those the voracious sharks and you pet its belly it passes out that's right orcas have learned that are you aware of this oh yeah orcas have learned this i read your book white upside down i said in the book and they turn it upside down and they eat its liver yeah orcas orcas (laughs) learned to pet the shark how did it find out there's such Beautiful mystery. I mean, and that toxic shock, whatever it is, is the it's not something that should be passed on. It's not a, right. a, 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 a habit, it's not a behavior that is conducive to long life. I mean, that should have been worked out a long time ago that anybody carrying that gene is now dead. But for some (laughs) reason, it's not. What is, what's the mystery behind it remaining? Because, because that simple dictum that if it works, it stays. If it doesn't work, it doesn't stay is the basis of, of life. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the argument is about that one. Uh, It's just simple. (laughs) You know, if your stairs are rickety, I wouldn't go up them, you know? So this thing in the book that I hope is there. And from what you're saying, it must be this idea that we belong to the universe and in that mystical way, whether it's prayer, meditation, blowing the, the, the deep horns from Tibet, uh, whether it's just awareness, just being aware. The wow, I didn't realize that was so you yeah. when you talk to people about electrochemical signals from one tree to another and that mother trees help their babies, people go, I didn't know that. Well, what a opening, what a, what a curtain opening that is. Yes, that's so. It's, it's measurable. It isn't like I think. It's measurable, folks. So let's <laughs> go on to the next miracle of well, whatever I- it is that, that makes us say, I didn't know that. That, that's
2: what I love about the book, but you also get the other side in it. I mean, you also go deep into the the dark parts of life, the human failings, whether you're discussing what happened to our friend Jeffrey Tubin, whether you're talking about how much you, you regretted hunting a Kodiak bear, which was very powerful to read. And of course, we just lost Miss Michelle Nichols. And in your chapter, Pieces of Humanity, you talk about interviewing her for a Star Trek book 30 years ago and discovering the, the tensions that existed with the other cast members yeah and it seems like these moments were things you also really wanted to include in this book the parts of self-reflection and learning and growth
1: well that's it i mean what's the point of finding something out if it doesn't work for you if you find out that a elephant rubs its rear end on a uh, insect's castle an insect's, right. and destroys it but causes the earth to move around it and eventually through rain and all it becomes a watering hole so that the smallest of life and the largest of life meet in the middle in in a african uh, savannah and 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 a watering hole which is now conducive to life all around comes as a result i mean that's like a miracle but that's nature and yes, that's what we should be uh, looking at all the time.
2: You know, you, you talk about death in the book and from a very honest and, and, uh, open perspective and about the fear of it. I remember a couple of years back when, when Marlon Brando died, I dug up this interview of yours. You had said, I'm not ready to die. It petrifies me. I might go alone. I go to a place I don't know. And aloneness really is a theme. In this book from being in the womb to your lost times in life and finally to when we finally make the departure how has your view of the end of life and what might lie beyond
1: it evolved in the past couple of years especially since I, turning ninety? Uh, i see the truth i wrote a song i've got a song to that uh, where i to make another uh, album i would include that song aloneness we are born alone. We are essentially alone. We do everything we can in our life to nurture the togetherness, but we're always alone, and then we die alone. So essentially, we're a column of life, feeling, whatever, and we're alone. We seek to make these communications. You write a book to Uh, here's what I think or I have a conversation with you and say God man that we're on the same level yes it's exactly right you've hit it you understood me now let me understand you yeah you know that reaching out that awesome reaching out to communicate with another human being I I had uh, more than one interview show and yes I I just loved reaching out to see what what the core or some part of the core of that person was i yes they they knew i wasn't there to hurt them i was there to make them go god i never thought of that i can't tell you the number of times i've interviewed people and them and them saying god i never thought of that about themselves
2: right that's the fun part of
1: this job oh my god i never thought of that well tell me more of it you know it was it, it it's ferocious
2: Absolutely. I mean, and in this book, it's it's still that that same kind of seeking, I think, that, that defines you. I mean, I, let me bring it back to Marlon Brando, because you, you talk in the book about how Brando used to put cue cards on set towards yeah. the end. And yeah. I, I wrote down what you wrote about that. I'm saving it for every role I ever do. In my career, uh, I-, I have never phoned in a job, and I have always drilled my lines and prepared and analyzed each role. The day that I feel I don't want to prepare 100% will be the day I'll just have to pack it in. I love that. And I love how you continue to grow as an actor. I'm wondering, are there any dream roles for you? I still hold out hope that we're going to see you play the, the player King and Hamlet at some point. What do you still want to do as an actor?
1: Um, I'm not interested in going back on stage and do another two year run. That's not sure. going to be for me. And the stage is a lot of work preparing yes. weeks and weeks of preparing hours and hours of drilling the words and then eight performances a week of course two on a, you know two on a Saturday and a Sunday it's overwhelming and when you're young and vital you can do it barely so I don't want to do that but making a film is like what you and I are doing right now if you could make the role as spontaneous as what we're doing. If you if your aim is to look like a two year old child playing on the floor and you're filming them they're they're absolutely you can't take your eyes away because they're so unaware that -hmm. they're filmed. If you could perform in such a manner That you're totally unaware. Everything about you is unaware of the camera. Yes, yes. That it startles you. When you have a bow and arrow and you have an anchoring point, there's a book called Zen of the the Zen of of Shooting an Arrow. Okay. Being an archer. There's a name to the book, which I read. And it talks about you have the anchoring point to your mouth like this, and then it should surprise you. Oh, as it comes out, even firing a gun, the last moment of the shot should surprise you. That's the way it would be. Idyllic acting. Yes. Words come out. uh, Where the hell did they come from? Although you drilled it the night before. That's right. If you work for that kind of innocent spontaneity. Robert
2: Altman got close, don't you think? Hopefully yeah, so there. people have
1: got Brando got close. Absolutely. Brando did it actually. But you know, there's a there's an affectation because you're aware. Uh we need a you gotta move to the mark. And then when he says X, uh we're gonna bring the camera. And so you're perforce have to be made aware of the technology. And yet if you're at it long enough, or maybe your talent is total immersion. Total immersion.
2: Yeah. Admiral, I would love to talk all day, but Starfleet is calling you away from us. Um, I want to get you back sometime just to talk about the record, Bill, because honestly, I I think it just brings everything you've ever done musically together. It's so true to itself. You you do so many genres, and it's not an album of just William Shatner does covers of pop songs, which are great, but this is something that's a real spoken word achievement. Uh, It's just so inspiring to see you Uh, putting out so much great
1: creative work. The words were written by Robert Chernow and I. We uh, then invited uh, various famous people to join me. And the songs are real. They're out of my heart. The process was, it was a genuine experience. And Robert and I wrote to that. And music was then applied. It's received reviews like breathtaking, breathtaking.
2: It's dynamite. I mean, it, there's gospel music on this. It's fantastic, and it's so much fun because I can tell you're having so much fun with all these different I had so styles. So much fun
1: doing it, and had so much fun at uh, Kennedy Center, which will now be an album in itself.
2: So. Oh, brilliant! The memoir—I can call it that—but it's so much more. is called "Boldly Go." reflections on a life of awe and wonder. William Shatner, it's such a joy to have you here. I didn't ask a single question about going into space and Jeff Bezos because I know you've been asked so many of them but I could talk to you forever. Thank you so much for doing what you do.
1: Thank you, man.
3: Pleasure talking to you.
2: Be well. Peace.